Uh, hey, everybody. I am Kevin. Hey, and I'm Andy. And um, this church started in our living room, so you're welcome. <laughs> Who says that? We didn't really help. Don't clap for us. We did not help. Uh, we actually made it harder by constantly interrupting Bible study because it was like my turn to play with the Super Nintendo. Yeah, so, so I would actually say the opposite. Like, if you don't like it, not our fault. Yeah. Like, we were trying to sabotage this thing from day one. Mm -hmm. And we failed. Here we are. Yeah, we wanted our parents to have like normal lives and careers, but like, no. So uh, now we're one big overgrown Bible study in Livermore and in Walnut Creek and Brentwood and Hayward and Danville. Did I forget anybody? I don't remember. I'm so sorry if I did. Uh, we've even got folks connecting with us uh, online and um, our incarcerated brothers and sisters in Christ with CF Inside. So, hey, everybody. Good to see you. So... Uh... Today we're gonna to talk about a really, really hard question. And that is why, why do bad things happen to good people? And this whole week, uh, we've been feeling the weight of this question, knowing how personal it is for so many people, knowing so many people even in our own lives that are just really going through it. And also knowing that uh, there are a lot of people who, who don't necessarily feel the permission to really struggle with these things. And, wonder out loud about these things here in church. But if we can't confront the contradictions and frustrations and confusing things here, then where are we gonna do it? Um, this question is very personal for me um, because it's just had a big part in my own faith journey. Uh, if you don't know me very well, I am a struggler. I am someone for whom faith has never come easy. And to make it worse, it seems like every single person in my family is in church work. Everybody's in ministry. My wife is a worship leader. My brother's a pastor. My dad's a pastor. My other brother's a worship leader. This is the, the, the world I live in. I am surrounded by people, and it seems like faith comes easier to them than it does to me. Uh, does anybody else ever feel like that? Where are my, where are my strugglers at? <laughs> Sometimes you look around and you're like, are you guys not seeing this? Like, how did that answer work for you? That's, that's my constant reality, and it all started for me actually with this question. I, uh, I lived an idyllic, wonderful, safe suburban childhood, and then I spent two months in Kenya, and I looked AIDS, and extreme poverty, and structural racism, and addiction right in the face. And all of a sudden I realized, oh no, I had built this safe little suburban theology with a nice little convenient God that fit in my pocket and I took him with me wherever I went and he made everything great. And I'm looking at all of these good people that really bad things have happened to. And even worse, then I came home and I realized that all that stuff was here too. I just wasn't looking at it. And as I've spent literally the last 10 years trying to methodically and painfully deconstruct the privilege through which I viewed the world, I have been struggling to reconcile the God of love, this all-powerful loving God with the world that we live in. You can ask anyone in my family. I have derailed many a family dinner with, but guys, seriously, what about this? 
my guide through all of this has been Andy. He's the person that I perhaps unfairly rely on to help me figure this stuff out. And I throw all kinds of stuff at him. Sometimes it's a very articulate, calm discussion, and other times I'm just in frustration throwing it at him and being like, you, you put it together, because I can't. So that's part of why we wanted to do this together, is, is to sort of show you guys maybe what it looks like to walk through something together. But, but before we go any further, I, I, I can't go any further without saying this question is too hard and too complicated, and I am still struggling with it. We're gonna talk about this for the next 30 or 40 minutes, and then I'm gonna walk that way, and I'm still not really gonna get it. That's, that's where I'm at, and I think that's where a lot of you are gonna be at too, but hopefully we can start to provide a framework for how to think about a question like this that doesn't quite make sense. Yeah, and we're, we're hoping that the, uh, the back and forth between us could be something that you could see and go, oh man, I, I think I have maybe one or two people in my life that I could have that back and forth with, because um, it's, just, it's just way better when you're not just alone in your own head. So we're hoping that what happens here makes you think, you know what, I know somebody, I'm gonna start that kind of thing with them. And so if you've got a Bible, open it up or power it on and turn to Matthew 11. There's, a, there's so many stories in the scriptures we could have chosen where something really awful is happening to a really good person. And today we're gonna focus in on the story of Jesus's cousin, John the Baptizer. In Matthew 11, John has a question for God that all of us either have asked or at some point in our life we're going to ask God this question. And the thing that really drew us to this story is that God answers John. There's a lot of stories where that doesn't happen for the people asking God their questions. But here, God answers John. And, and my, my confidence is that in this time and space, God has the ability to also say something to each one of us that is tailored exactly to where we're at. Uh, I couldn't do that, but the Holy Spirit can. So that's what we're inviting and trusting God to do during this time. So if you would, please uh, stand and read along with us. Matthew 11, verse 2. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect somebody else? And Jesus replied, go back, report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. So you can have a seat. This is John the Baptist. This is the moment of his execution. John is a good man. Jesus himself would say that John was the greatest person to be born. And John had been getting people ready for the arrival of Jesus and his kingdom, this was the moment, or so John thought, when God was gonna make everything right again. John's message, his sermons, were the coming one is gonna baptize with fire and the Holy Spirit. A cleansing, purging fire for all the bad people, and then in the space that was created, this blessing, healing, outpouring of the Holy Spirit for all the good people that makes all things new. 
And John didn't believe that anybody was exempt from his warning, and so he challenged the man in power in his day, Herod Antipas. And what you need to know about Herod, Herod is the kind of person who uses his power to get what he wants whenever he wants it, and he used his power to take another man's wife. And John confronts this powerful politician, and he dares to describe their immoral relationship with, a, with words like adultery and sin, and so Herod silences the voice of conscience and throws him in jail. Basically, John speaks truth to power and ends up in prison. And left to rot in that prison cell, John is, he is surprised, he's, he's dejected, he is, he's broken, he's confused, he is, he is disappointed. This was not how John expected the story to go. The coming one was supposed to bring bad to the bad people, like Herod, and good to the good people, like John. But everything has been turned upside down for John, and from this place of disappointment and personal darkness, that's where John asks his question for Jesus. Jesus, and I don't know if I should ask this question like ready to cry, or if I should ask this question with anger in my voice, I feel like a little bit of both is where John's coming from here, but Jesus, are, are, are you the coming one? Or, or do, I, do I look for somebody else? It's probably the most painful question that Jesus was ever asked. It's probably the saddest question that Jesus was ever asked. Have you ever wanted to ask God some form of John's question? Now, this might not be where you're at right now, but it could be where your friends and family are at. So during this time, maybe this isn't a message for you specifically for what's going on in your life, but maybe this is God's way of preparing you so that you can be the kind of friend who can come alongside them and make space for them in the ways that they're struggling. It's also worth like actually like look around right now, like look side to side. Some of the empty seats in this room, the reason that they're empty is because people can't get past this question. I can't bring myself to walk through the doors of a church where I hear them talk about a good and loving God and look at the world that we are living in. Are they naive? Are they deliberately sheltering themselves? Do they not see what's actually going on? What possible truth, what possible good news could those people have for me because they must not be living in the same world that I'm living in. It's important for us to realize from the very top that this is a very logical question. There is a contradiction between the God, the omnipotent and loving God, and the brokenness of the world we live in. And that contradiction is very difficult for a lot of people to live, to, to understand, and I, I'm one of them. Part of the comfort of this story is actually John the Baptist. Um, I think he's the type of person who would get along with those people because he liked talking about hard truths and hard questions. But right now, his circumstances are leading him to struggle. He doesn't know it yet. I, I, my guess is he probably suspects it, but he's not going to leave this prison. Jesus is not going to kick the door in and give him the storybook ending. This, there's this question of why do bad things happen to good people, but there's, all, there's also why do good things happen to bad people? And John is confronting both of them right now. Has that ever bothered you? Have you ever seen someone who seems to lie and cheat and steal and deceive their way to the thing that you wanted, to the thing that you thought you deserved? John can hear from his prison cell the singing 
and dancing and drunkenness get louder. And he knows that when this group of people gets drunker and louder, that does not mean good things for me. From where he sits, rotting in a prison cell, the bad guys are winning. And had insult to injury, the rumors that he's hearing about what Messiah is doing is that he's hanging out with this exact type of person at this exact type of party. Jesus is hanging out with the drunkards and the tax collectors and the promiscuous and the collaborators. And he's not flipping over tables or cracking a whip. He's, he's not bringing fire, he's bringing friendship. He's bringing mercy. So John's question really is, if you really are the one you say you are, the one that I've been saying you are, I'm the one who came before you and pointed everybody at you. If that's who you are, then why am I here? Why are you there? I think you could say that John is theologically disappointed with Jesus because the Messiah isn't following the Messiah script. And John is personally disappointed with his cousin. Jesus is setting everybody free except his family. Would you say it's true that um, in your life and in the lives of people who are struggling that, that our theological and our, our personal disappointments, those things usually go hand in hand? Nearly all theological anguish is personal hurt. So when somebody has a problem with God, don't just jump right on their case and, and react. There's a, there's a story there, there's a reason there. Ask questions, listen, dig. You started off and you, 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 you believed, you knew who God was and, and you believed that the way that he was working in the world, that that was the best way and you trusted his promises to bring goodness to your life and then someone in your life for whom you've prayed your guts out dies. You get a stage four cancer diagnosis. Or you lose your job. You get evicted. You, you find out he's been, he's been cheating on you. You, you lose the baby. Or you wake up and you check Twitter or you turn on the news and something awful has happened again. And you just get, you get furious because it seems like the bad people are winning and they get richer and more powerful and justice isn't coming. Or maybe it seems like no matter how much you pray or how many pills you take, or how many counseling sessions you go to, this depression won't leave, and this anxiety is your constant companion. The circumstances that confront us in our broken world, both zoomed out when we're talking about tragedy on a ma major scale, and that seems to happen so often, or zoomed in in our personal lives, they have a way of of destroying the nice, neat boxes and safe, comfortable theology that, that we start with. And when that happens, I think all of us can relate to John's need to question God. He's not petulant. He's not lacking faith. He's looking at the world around him and seeing the contradiction in the Messiah that he was preaching. 
It's coming from a place of honesty and authenticity. And he's saying, God, why did you allow this to happen to me? And God, why are you acting this way in the world? Why do bad things keep happening to good people? And if we want to get at that question, we're going to have to ask another question, which is, Jesus, why, why did Jesus show up and live among us for 33 years? What, what was the point of his arrival and his ministry and then his death and then his resurrection and, and the ascension? What was the point? What was happening there? 1 John 3, 8 tells us this. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And maybe nobody's ever told you this before. But you were born into a world at war. You came into a conflict zone. And all throughout the Bible, we're told about this war going on. And as you know, every war has casualties and damage. And so everywhere we look, we see a broken earth, broken bodies and minds, broken relationships. It is all connected to the war that's been going on long before you and I showed up on the scene. Why are bad things happening to good people? If you're taking notes, here's the first thing that we've gotta keep in mind with this question. We're in a war zone. And the reason that Jesus appeared was to turn the tide of the war. When Luke tells us about the same story, we get this extra detail about Jesus dealing with some of the casualties of the war. In Luke 7, 21, it says, at that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits. And he gave sight to many who were blind. And then Jesus sends a report back to John. He says, you guys tell John what you just saw me do. Jesus is addressing the casualties and the damage, and he wants John to see that and know it. But Jesus isn't, he didn't come just to deal with the casualties. He's going to the very root of the problem, the enemy himself. But he's gonna do this in the most surprising way. In, in John 12, Jesus is about to go to his death on a Roman cross, and this is what he has to say about that moment in John 12. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself, and he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Jesus is going to turn the tide of the war by dying on a cross. So we talk about this title, <clears throat> talk about this title, the Prince of the World. Uh, it's important to keep in mind that that's a title for Satan, the accuser, our enemy, our adversary, the personification of evil. And that title, Prince, obviously implies that there's some authority there. And of this world, that's where we live. But Jesus says, not for long. There's all kinds of things happening on the cross. Judgment of this world, the prince of this world being driven out. All people will be drawn to Jesus. So why did Jesus go to the cross? Yes, it was to save us from sin. But Jesus is saying there is so much more going on. Yes, I'm going to be casting out demons and healing the sick, and the lame will walk, the blind will see. I will be addressing the casualties, but I'm also going to the source. I'm going to win this thing. And, uh, and we can forget this. 
We can think that the main problem is broken people and broken systems. If we just get the right politicians into office, if we just get the right laws passed, if we can just educate people and enlighten people and open their minds and understanding, then, then we're going to be better off. True. People and systems can be part of the problem. But until we're ready to acknowledge the unseen powers at work behind the broken people and behind the broken systems, we won't, we won't understand why some of those people and systems, it's like there is something guiding the evil, giving it speed and resources that's almost supernatural. We're just like, how did that get so bad? And we won't know what to do with most of the bad things that we see going on in the world. And so the Apostle Paul puts it like this. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle, it's not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers and against the authorities and the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul's like this battlefield general calling out to us over these deafening explosions saying, get your armor on. We're under enemy fire. What are you doing? If we forget the war, well, then we, don't, we won't know what to do with the casualties. We point the blame at God and other people. All the while, this is, this is an incomplete answer. It's not keeping the larger story in frame. Okay, so I'm gonna put my struggling skeptic hat on here. And this is actually like the dynamic of this conversation that has played out between us over the years, is that I would always sort of get to this point in the conversation and be like, okay, that all makes sense. But and it makes sense that there's a war going on, that there's an adversary, that Jesus is telling this larger story, cool. But it, it always felt to me like the elephant in the room was um, when this war got started, wasn't God still God then? Wasn't God still all powerful? Wasn't God still loving? Didn't God know that this was gonna happen? And he let it happen, right? Like there's this inconsistency between, we almost kind of like let God off the hook sometimes. And it's like, no, you, when you can see the whole picture and you have the power to change it, that's the God we need to address and engage and fit into this equation. And I, I just kept bumping up against this over and over and over again and couldn't get past it. And what it took for me was reframing what the Bible is. So is it an instruction manual for living? Is it a guidebook that's gonna give us all the answers? For me, those sorts of frameworks for understanding the Bible fall short mostly because of the rampant immorality of almost everybody in the Bible. There's a like, children's superhero Bible and like Samson's on the cover and I'm like, I'm sorry, Samson is, Sam he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a sex addict and a murderer. That, he's not my hero. That dude's not a hero. Yeah. It's like an, it's this incomplete sort of myopic way of viewing the Bible and where I landed, the beginnings of an answer, and again, I said this on top, I'm still struggling through this. The beginnings of an answer for me is to reframe the Bible as an epic love story. That is what the Bible is. It's epic in that its scope is gigantic. It takes a long time to play out. There are lots of twists and turns. It's a, it's a Kevin Costner movie. It's like a little too long. <laughs> it takes a long time to tell the story, but it's a love story. 
So here's, here's how I see it, if I back up really far. The Bible doesn't say that God has love or that God feels love or that God is loving. The Bible says that God is love. That is his fundamental attribute. It's who he is and his presence is an undeniable expression of love. He cannot be without loving. It's who he is. And love requires an object. So God creates. But love is risky. It's risky because love requires that the object of your love is a free agent free to receive and respond in love or free to reject that love or else it takes no risks and it is not love. So God created humans and spiritual beings and said, here's me. This is who I am. Will you love me back? And some people, some of those spiritual beings did And some of them started a rebellion and started the war that we live in right now. The Bible is a love story, and it only makes sense in that context. So so God, that, that rebellion gets started, things get really messy, things get really broken, but... God so loved the world that he entered the story because what God creates, God loves, God redeems. That is the story of the Bible. And he's going to bring this epic love story to a completion that will be, not yet, it's very much unsatisfactory right now, but it will be entirely satisfactory for everybody. The Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when you read that, I encourage you not to imagine some show of fealty to a king that is required. Okay, God's telling me to bow my knee, I'm gonna bow my knee. I would encourage you to imagine everybody saying, oh, I get it now. Glory to God, the author and finisher of the story. That that is the climax that we see in Revelation, the end of the story that is written but not yet manifested. That's the end of that love story. So, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? We're in a war, we're in a war zone, but we're a part of this epic love story. That's why we're in a war in the first place. God is authoring that love story and it involves him and you and me and the entire created world, but the middle of the story where we're at right now is really messy. Okay, so putting my struggling skeptic hat back on because that was a little too neat and tidy for me. Did you ever take the hat off? Yeah, no. Uh, So that's all well and good, right? Maybe you're with me so far. I think the next natural question, the next question I ask is like, okay, cool. We're at war, epic love story, I get it. But what about the cross and the resurrection? 
Didn't, didn't that end the story? Didn't we win? What are we still doing here? Why is my pain still here? What, 2,000 years past the cross, why am I heartbroken? And this is where John's tripping up and it's where we can trip up too. And it happens when we don't know where we are in the greater story. Um, imagine you're at your local mall and you're totally confused about where you are until you come up to that mall map and it's all incredibly confusing until you find that very helpful you are here sticker. And then you go, oh, okay. And then once you get your bearings, you can navigate the space. So we can summarize John's struggle in this way. John's message was, hey, everybody, the Messiah's coming. It's time to get ready because when he gets here, he is bringing fire and spirit. That's John's mall map. That's how he understands how the story is going. He warned people of this cleansing, purging fire that would rid the world of evil, and then there's this hope that there's this outpouring for the spirit that's gonna set everything right, and the Messiah's gonna bring bad to the bad people and good to the good people. Fire and spirit. John expects them one after the other and immediately. But Jesus is bringing them one at a time and too slowly. Jesus isn't doing these things when and how John thinks he should. And for John, and I think really often for us, uh, God's way can feel too slow because our pain and our confusion and our frustration, it feels really urgent. We have this little like saying in Christianity, like God's timing is not our timing. And it's true, it's very true. But sometimes I see it wielded without the empathy that it, it deserves. When you're sitting and you're hooked up to a chemo drip, you're not annoyed with God for not moving too slowly. You're not impatient. You're just heartbroken. You're just hurting. God's timetable, as he, as he tells this story, can be really confusing and it can be really frustrating. But I wonder if all of us have really internalized the fact that we can take that confusion and that frustration and we can bring it right to God with no filter. God doesn't need to be protected from it. He doesn't, he's not worried about your tone. He just wants to hear from you. And, and there's this long biblical tradition of people who've asked all these really hard questions of God. Just, we're just gonna give you a sample. Psalm 13, the psalmist says, how long, Lord? Are you, are you gonna forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long do I have to wrestle with my thoughts and day after day of sorrow in my heart? Sounds like somebody who's dealing with anxiety and depression. And, and, and when somebody asks the question, how long, three times, uh, you get the feeling that they think it's been too long. But... Did you know that you can talk to God like that? The prophet Jeremiah, he says, you are always righteous, Lord, when I bring a case before you. Yet I would speak with you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? Jeremiah is saying, uh, hey God, uh, I would speak to you about your justice. Did you know that you can talk to God like that? So before we go any further, we're in a war zone. We're a part of an epic love story, but in the messiness of that story, 
in the raw and frustrating and confusing day-to-day that we are a part of, God does not want or need us to filter our frustration. And it's the same in Matthew 11. John asks Jesus a really tough question, and Jesus gives John a really straight answer. He says, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The deaf hear, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are healed, evil spirits are cast out. I'm doing the things that Messiah said he was gonna do. Blessed is he who doesn't stumble over me. He's basically saying the story is on track and I am doing my part and you are doing your part and I am inviting you to not stumble over me but instead to trust me. In, in John's case and in the case for so many of us right now, it, it seems like God moves way too slow. So, so we have to ask, God, why, why the delay? And Jesus' disciple Peter, who had struggles of his own, he, he helps us with this question. He says... The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but instead for everyone to come to repentance. Why is God still allowing evil and pain to exist and even thrive on our planet? He is holding it all back for our sakes, because the recreation of the world involves us. We are at center stage of God's plan to renew and restore and reconcile all things. The point behind human history is to develop and to recreate us. But hear me, your formation might not be the reason why God is allowing you to go through what you're going through. So, so please hear me out on that. For those sorts of questions, you need other people around you who know your specific context and story. People have been walking with God for a long time and you work that out with them. Because some things that happen to us are just senseless and evil. And there's no other way to put it. But those things have never been beyond God's ability to redeem. So this week, uh, we shared a little bit of the rough draft of what we were working through with a group of folks here at Cornerstone that have been going through uh, some really, really tough stuff. And one of those people is a man named Paul. And Paul came to Cornerstone about a month or a year ago through grief care because he had just lost the love of his life. And I can't imagine what he's going through. In a weird way, I don't even wanna try to empathize with what he's going through because I go there and my heart breaks. But Paul told us that God worked through my pain to get my attention to bring me here. Paul's pain was and remains awful. But Paul told us, my pain was not wasted. And he said, you tell them that their pain is not wasted either. When we're struggling, we have to remember that God's future, God's big plan, God's story that he's trying to tell, it doesn't minimize or waste your pain right now. If you are struggling, 
if you are hurting, if you had to drag yourself in here today, I want you to know that one of the reasons why I follow Jesus is because of how many different times in my life I have seen that God is near to the brokenhearted. I don't completely understand it. It's mysterious and beautiful and magical. But when you are hurting, God is drawn to you. So I would encourage you, in your pain, lean into God. He is already leaning into you. It's not why this happened to you. you he didn't hurt you because he wanted to be close to you. That's not how he works. But in that hurt, his desperate, overwhelming desire is that you would allow him to begin redeeming that pain right now and not wait for heaven. He is near to you. You don't have to suffer alone. Jesus already did that. Draw near, and he will hold you up. He's with you in your suffering, and he knows how you feel. I wanna, I wanna show you something from one of my favorite artists who um, always likes to put you and me, the viewer, in a, in a unique vantage point. Um, in this moment, in this painting, you are looking through the eyes of somebody else. I don't know if you can see where you are, but there are some people who are looking up at you with so much pity in their eyes, and there are other people who are looking at you with so much scorn, and you're up higher than the rest of them. Do you know whose eyes you're looking through? This is Jesus' view on the cross. Why do bad things happen to good people is a really big question, but I think maybe the question behind the question is does God even care? That was what John shared. Does God even care and can, can he do anything about it? Is he gonna do anything about it? And we don't have to look any further than the cross for the answer to that question, does God care? Yes. Look at Jesus on the cross. The cross is God choosing to wade into the mess and saying, I know that this is broken and confusing and frustrating, but I'm here. I'm in it, right next to you. It's Jesus physically submitting his body and his spirit to the pain and the betrayal and the loneliness that we feel, all so that we could see beyond the shadow of a doubt that this is a love story. This is what you do for someone that you love. Greater love has no man than this, that he that laid down his life for his friends. For thousands of years, we have identified so strongly with the cross. And honestly, it's a little weird. The cross is gross. It is bloody and visceral and painful. But it speaks to our longing to know that we are not alone in suffering. It's God's way of saying, I know how you feel. God will come alongside you. There are so many people in this room right now who can testify to that fact. 
But let's also ask, is there anyone, as I participate with Jesus in bringing the kingdom come, is there anyone that I need to come alongside, be with them in their pain, look them in the eye and say, I know how you feel. One of the powerful parts of our journey through pain and frustration is that our pain gives us empathy. And that empathy, that pain, it gives us the authority to look in someone's eyes with complete sincerity and say, I know how you feel. But, um, but that doesn't leave you out if you don't know how they feel. Um, if you care about them, our hope is that you'll, you'll listen and you'll make space for their questions. And, and we really hope you're not gonna try to summarize their pain and frustration with something that you could write on a cheesy Hallmark card. Because if a simple answer would have helped them, they would have already found it. They don't, they don't need a simple answer, they need a friend who's gonna walk with them. So go for a long walk. Let's remember where we come from today. We are, we're in a war zone, you need to remember that. We are part of an epic love story. We don't need to filter our frustration. My pain's not gonna be wasted. And we can be able, we can, we can be able to say with sincerity, I, I know how you feel. So, we need a little hope right now, would you say? Uh, right now, okay, God is in my pain, I, I get it, he's with me, he gets it, but what about my healing? What about, what about my future? Is God gonna do anything about that? Yes. Three words. Repeat after me. Already. Already. Not yet. Not yet. The decisive part of Jesus' work on the cross has already been accomplished. He has already gone to the cross. He has already resurrected from the dead. His victory over sin and death and the devil has already been won. Amen. But the victory has not yet been fully carried out into every part of the world and every part of our lives. Already? Not yet. And Christians are people who live in that space between. But this is something that you and I can trust. Because of the already, the not yet will happen. Amen. The final outcome is not up for grabs. Because the living God has become one of us, forever binding himself to our humanity, now his destiny is our destiny. Amen. Jesus emerges from the grave, still wearing the scars of his suffering so that he would never move past his ability to be able to look you right in the eye and say, I know how you feel. But there's not just empathy. Jesus is going to have his victory. Yes, there is a war going on, but you can, you can skip ahead to the end of that Bible that you have in your hands, and guess what? Jesus wins the war, and he will wipe every tear from your eye. There will be no more pain or mourning or crying or pain because those things were part of the old world that Jesus left dead in the grave, and Jesus is gonna make all things new because of the already, the not yet, will happen. Amen. So guys, I'm gonna leave you with this. I'm gonna leave you with the prayer that as a struggling skeptic, that I pray more than any other. 
Um, it's the prayer I pray in my car. It's the prayer I pray at night when I'm wrestling with something and my brain is spinning in a bunch of different places. It's, it's the prayer, you might have seen me, I usually sit over here, you might see me with my hands raised and my eyes closed, and you might be thinking like, oh, Kevin's having a cool moment with God, how sweet. This is what I'm praying. I'm praying the prayer of a desperate dad whose son is tormented, and he's at the end of his rope, and he comes to Jesus, and he needs healing for his son. And Jesus asks him about his faith. And he says, Lord, I believe. But also, can you help me overcome my unbelief? It's this beautiful, honest contradiction. It's the contradiction that I live in all the time. But Jesus sees that, and he doesn't shame him, and he doesn't shame me or you. He makes space for that contradiction, and then he turns to this man's son, and he sets him free. All of this messiness, there's a reason for it, even if it's confusing and frustrating and we only understand a little bit of it. But we have to remember that we follow Jesus, who waded into this mess with us, hurts alongside us, and will perfectly and permanently fix it. So we, we thought of no better way to, to, to leave you than at, at the feet of Jesus. That's what this time is for. At, at all of our campuses, this is the time to be prayed for. This is the, the time to, in your seat with other people, work through these things, to, to sing. What, however you need to respond, Jesus has been present to us this entire time. So let's draw near to him during this time.